Hey there, and welcome to What's the Story? We're an inquisitive bunch of hosts on a mission to uncover stories about faith and courage from everyday people. In doing that, we get the privilege of chatting with amazing guests and have the opportunity to delve into their faith journey, the hurdles they've overcome, and the life lessons they've learned along the way. If you enjoy our podcast, don't forget to subscribe and sign up for our weekly newsletter at our website, whatsthestorypodcast.com. It's your direct line to the latest episodes and detailed show notes delivered straight to your inbox. What's the Story is brought to you by Crowd Church, who fully understand that stepping into a traditional church might not be everyone's cup of joe. Crowd Church provides a digital sanctuary, a safe space to explore the Christian faith where you can engage in meaningful conversations rather than just simply spectating. So whether you're new to the Christian faith or in search of a new church family, visit crowd.church. And if you have any questions, just drop them an email to hello at crowd.church. They would love to connect with you. And now, let's meet your host and our special guest for today. So I am with Kristen Hallinan. Oh, yes. Welcome to What's the Story. Uh, Kristen is a sought-after writer and speaker who is passionate about helping women redeem the pain of their past and move towards a healthier and more hopeful future, which to me sounds like an awesome thing to do. I'm not going to lie. She's on a mission to equip women and support families, has previously worked as the Director of Development for MOPS International. We'll get into that because I didn't know what it was. (laughs) Uh, And she enjoys working with teen mums or moms, uh, crisis pregnancy centres, and serving as a premarital mentor with her husband, Sean, in Dallas, Texas. Cue the music if you're from a certain era. Now, Legacy Changer is Kristen's debut book that is about to come out. We're going to chat about that and you can find her other writings and publications like Relevant Magazine and The Joyful Life. Laughing with her and chasing her uh, helps, uh, well, chasing her four children, should I say four children, I think that's more than enough, uh, (laughs) helps burn off the calories she consumes of her favorite treat, homemade, gluten-free churros. Now, Kristen, welcome to What's the Story. I've been looking forward to this uh, and chatting to you since we since we met. So thank you for coming on. Me too. Thanks for having me. No, no, gluten-free churros. Now, this is your favorite treat. I'm not going to lie. You've not sold it to me yet. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, I... Been diagnosed with celiac for about 20 years now. So gluten-free okay. is something I'm used to. to. Yeah. And I miss churros so bad. So when I learned how to make them at home, I was a happy camper. <laughs> You'll have to send me the recipe because uh, there are members of my family that are also gluten-free. Um, and there are certain food groups which I fully appreciate. Uh, you do miss uh, if you can't yes. eat gluten. So um, I'm I'm uh, excited to, to see what that actually will differ you know, to taste those. Uh, so if you send me the recipe, I'm going to ask my daughter to make them. Um, so I'll do you're, it. Oh, yeah, do it. Do it. Totally do it. So you're in Dallas, Texas. Have you always been in Dallas, Texas? No, we lived here for about five years. We lived in Colorado for uh, the rest of our marriage, and I was in California before that. California. So you've gone from California to Colorado to Dallas, Texas. Yeah. Um, that's, quite a, that's quite a change. Yes, wildly different <laughs> cultures, and it's like completely different countries. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, having been to all three, I, I can see, I can see that. Now, Dallas is obviously the home of, well, barbecue, basically, isn't it? It's just, uh, it's I, every time I go to Dallas, um, there's a there's a place that um, a friend of mine, I go stay with a friend of mine, a guy called Rich Rising, who is an absolute legend. He lives in Dallas, Texas, and. Um, we always go to this barbecue. I wish I could remember the name of it, but I really can't. But it's this place where they there are the sort of the. I mean, you got to remember, I'm British, right? So uh, yes. I just I'm not used to the sheer size of these things. And they have barbecues which are the size of small sheds, don't they? And mm-hmm. they they the just the fact that they have twenty of them side by side <laughs> is is extraordinary. And you sort of walk around them to get into the restaurant and. Uh, and I think I know food. the one you're talking about. Yep. You, you, what, yeah, it, what's the name of it? Because I is it called Heart Eight? Yes. 
Oh, yeah. That's one of our favorites. We learned that barbecue is a whole food group here that we know nothing about. <laughs> yeah, a whole food group. I love that. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, when I was over there, the first, very first time I went to Dallas, uh, Rich said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, honestly, I want to go dance on the lawn of South Fork Ranch. <laughs> <laughs> just because of the team. I grew up in a certain era where Dallas was on TV every week. And so uh, we used to watch JR and Bobby and all that sort of stuff when we were kids. And um, and so, yeah, I went to visit South Fork and I managed to dance on the grass. And there's a video of me somewhere on social media doing this. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> you should do it too. It's, it's quite cathartic. Yes, I should. <laughs> so tell me about your... Um, your Christian journey, uh, I mean, obviously, we, you've gone from California to Colorado to Dallas. But Christian-wise, did you grow up in a Christian family? Uh, was there maybe an event for you later in life? How did that happen? Yeah, I did not grow up in a house of believers. My dad was and still is an atheist today. Okay. And my mom, she was raised Catholic, but we never heard the name of Jesus in our house. It wasn't something that she brought into our childhood. And I mean, I truly thought that Christmas was Santa Claus. I had never heard (laughs) anything other than that. And so it wasn't until I was in seventh grade and got invited over to sleepovers on Saturday nights with my friend. Mm. We'd go on Sunday mornings. Her dad was a pastor of a little church that was planting in a local high school. Mm -hmm. And so we'd go and set up all the chairs and I'd sit there and listen and had no clue what he was talking about and felt kind of a mixture of nervous about it because I knew my parents were uncomfortable that I was going and hearing all these things. Mm -hmm. And, and then also like the strange draw towards it that Mm -hmm. I just knew like there was something here that I was totally fascinated by and wanted to learn about. But I, never ended up really understanding at that juncture in my life. It was more the way that family loved me that stuck with me because it was just so different than anything I'd ever experienced. So the, that impacts on you then just going to church, not really understanding, but being invited along, being loved by a family. That was Mm -hmm. a profound thing for you or was. Yeah. Yeah, it was because my house that I grew up in, was pretty just emotionally cold and distant. And um, my parents had a lot of big feelings, but my sister and I weren't really allowed to. And so a lot of just hypervigilance looking over our shoulder, kind of taking the temperature of the room all times. Like, are we in a good mood today? Are we in a bad mood? And what could I do to try to circumvent this mood that is walking into the room right now. And so it was kind of like walking on eggshells all the time in our house. And at my friend's house, in contrast, they would sit and play family games and they would laugh and they had nicknames for each other and they had inside family jokes. And I mean, just all of this was so foreign to me. Mm -hmm. And even the discipline um, was done in love in their house and they included me in that discipline. Um, And I felt so loved by Mm -hmm. those loving boundaries that they put in place. And so it was just an experience that opened my eyes for the first time, but like maybe all families don't have to look like the way my family looks like. Right. Right. Well, I know we're going to get into this in, in some more detail, but the, how old were you when you, sorry, when you were going to church with your friend? Uh, seventh grade. So I think 12. Okay. So 12, about 12 years old. So is that when you, as evangelicals like to say, became a Christian or was there was there more to the story? Yeah, there was more to the story. So shortly after that, my mom and sister and I moved to Colorado uh, to move in with my grandparents when my parents were getting a divorce. Mm-hmm. And so I did high school there and um, kind of um, more or less forgot about everything that I had heard um, during <laughs> that time in the church because it hadn't really settled into my heart yet. Mm-hmm. And um was not until I went to college in Colorado and was totally rebelling and just living an out of control life that I used to say, like, I don't know what got a hold of me, but now I know it's like the Holy Spirit got a hold of me and was like, <laughs> you got to knock this off and turn mm. this around because this story doesn't end well the way right. you're going. And so I took myself to church. 
um, I had just remembered, you know, that's what my friend's family had done. And they seemed to be living the life that I really wanted on wow. the inside. Yeah. And so maybe I'm going to find something there. And so I didn't have an invitation. I didn't have a friend to go with. I just started showing up and the school I went to was CU Boulder and it was the number one party school in America at the time. And right. it, so when people hear that I became a Christian at CU Boulder, like that is not a normal story, okay. um, <laughs> but that is where the Lord got a hold of me. Mm. That's super So how old are you at this point? Uh, I was 19 at that point. Okay. So, um, right. So you've, you've, you've moved to Colorado. Your parents got divorced you get into the party scene um, and God gets a hold of you when you're 19. I just, I just love this, you know, in, in, in the most unusual of places. And you kind of come to this realization, life's not on a good trajectory. So you just take yourself to church. No one invited you. You just sort of went along. Yep. Wow. Wow. So how did you feel? I mean, I, 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 there's so many questions around this, right? Because I, I and the reason why I've got so many questions is because I have a similar story. Okay, mm-hmm. um, but I, I'm kind of curious. How did you choose what church to go to? Because there's there's so many different types of church, you know. And, and what yep. was that sort of first experience like for you going into the building? I'd heard of a campus um, ministry that would hold um, just like a college church night on Tuesday nights. And it was uh, in a really old, like hundreds of year old church building. It was a first Presbyterian of Boulder. Mm -hmm. And I, so I showed up to the Tuesday nights and walked in and didn't recognize a soul. And so just sat in the very back corner by myself Mm -hmm. and uh, on the outside felt like super uncomfortable. Just (laughs) felt like everyone must know that I don't know what to do here. Yeah. but also there was such a depth of sadness on the inside mm-hmm. that it was almost like, I don't care how silly I look. Like I've got to figure out something else. Something else has to be the answer. Mm. So, so you go into the college campus. How long, how long were you going to that for the, the Tuesday night? Was it, was it really, was it a case of the first week God totally zapped you or was it more of a gradual kind of introduction it was more of a gradual yeah it took um i would say a couple months mm. um until i was ready to say i believe full-heartedly mm. and i'm on board and i'm not turning back wow so if someone had said to you were you a christian before you went to school um and mm-hmm. started going to those kind of things would you how would you have answered that question um, I'm kind of curious there because I, I would have said I was because of the country that I'd grown up in and because of the assumed I'm a Christian because I'm British and therefore a member of the Anglican Church here. Okay. Um, looking back, I would I would say that I, I, I had some element of faith, whether it was enough to call myself a Christian or not, I don't know. But um, for you, what would you have said had someone asked you that question? I would say for sure. No, I just, I couldn't even have told you like, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Mm. What is a Christian? Like I would have had no clue. Right. So yeah, I would say no, there was no element of me praying or me, you know, even legalistically, like me trying to behave because I wanted to be a Christian. Like there was just none of that. So when you, when you did then you, you go to the college campus um, does life inst- well, it takes a couple of months, right? But after during those couple of months, is the does does life tra- change dramatically? Are you at peace with yourself? Has God done a work in you? Has the partying stopped, or is life still the same mess? But there's a bit more hope somewhere in the middle of it. Kind of somewhere in between, I would say. I was freed from my addiction to chasing boys as validation (laughs) of my worth. Okay. And so that was healed in Mm -hmm. me. And it was not long after that, that I started dating who now is my husband Mm -hmm. and he was raised a believer. Um, so I feel like God, and I had known him for years and years, but God didn't like give me a blessing on that becoming a relationship until Mm -hmm. I had a relationship with him. Mm. Um, and so in that sense, life was very different because 
I wasn't chasing anymore, but Mm -hmm. I still had so much pain that I just didn't even understand at the time. Mm -hmm. And it would be years from then until I really started to unpack it. So when you say you had so much pain, if you don't mind me asking, what what was the pain? Was that yeah. from the from the house? I mean, you mentioned uh, you know about growing up and seeing a difference with the the Christian friend when you were twelve. Was it from that? Was it from something else? Was it a combination of things? What, what, what yeah. was the pain? From that and from my parents' divorce, um, it was a really messy divorce, and mm. um, there were threats and restraining orders and oh, all wow. sorts of. It was just a really long, drawn out, ugly process. And I didn't talk to my dad for twelve years after that. And wow. so the, um, just the feeling of betrayal and abandonment, and then in combination with here's my mom not trying to take care of these girls, but she herself has so many wounds from her own childhood and from her marriage that was a mess and just Mm. fallen apart. And she just became even more emotionally distant to my sister and I. So there was really not a lot of anywhere for me to understand what was going on or um, a soft place to land. And so I put on a tough girl badge. Like I'm, this just all means I'm really tough and I'm really strong and I can get through anything. And I think really it just meant I'm really wounded and I haven't dealt with any of it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing how to, the, how, how those two things go together, isn't it? And having, you see, when my parents got divorced, um, this was back in the eight, I'm, I appreciate I'm probably a little bit older than you, Kristen. So, you know, when I, I was, I was a teenager during the eighties, which I have to say was the best decade ever. Mm. I just want to point that out. Um, <laughs> but my parents got divorced when I was, what I was, I was quite young, maybe nine, ten, I think, somewhere around there. I don't really remember it. Um, it wasn't. It was different to yours in the sense that there was no restraining orders. There was no, you know, they tried their best to to look still friends in front of me and my brother. Behind the scenes, maybe things were a little bit different, but on the whole, they they worked really hard to try and create some sense of we don't love enough each other enough to stay married, but, you know, we'll be civil uh, to Mm -hmm. to each other. Um, And we would visit my dad once a week, but the rest of the time we sort of spent with my mum. And I think my parents' divorce changed how I viewed my mum. I think I became much closer to my mum, more so than my dad in, in many ways. So my, I think my experience in in a lot of ways was different to yours. So I, but it was hard enough in the 80s, mm-hmm. saying, you know, my parents are getting divorced when you're at school. Um, yeah. It must have been horrific if that divorce then was was angry and bitter and, and all kinds of stuff mixed in as well. Yeah. Yeah, my dad showed up at one point and, you know, the truth I'll never really know, but what we were told was that he was threatening to kill my mom and my grandma And so that's when the restraining order came in place and he wasn't paying child support and I think got pulled over on a traffic stop and they knew this. So he got tossed in jail and um, rights were terminated. And from there on out, we just didn't speak of him. And there was just this piece of me that was so confused. And I think Mm. Satan just used that to speak lies to me. Like he didn't stay because you weren't worth staying for. You weren't worth loving. And I just took those narratives into the rest of my life and into the rest of the relationships I was in. And even into Mm. my young marriage, it was really affecting me because I just expected my husband to leave all the time. Wow. Wow. I, I was going to say, I, how, see, I think that your dad, I have two sons and I have one daughter. Um, so we stopped at three. Uh, three was more than enough for me. <laughs> I think you're very brave doing four. Um, and to be fair, if I'd have had my daughter first, I don't know if we'd have had any more children. <laughs> uh, love the bones off her, but for the first two years of her life, she was a nightmare. Um, and she she quite enjoys me telling that to people now. <laughs> She's quite <laughs> proud of that fact. But what I what I can say is my daughter is now uh, just about to turn seventeen, and so I the relationship with my boys is different to the relationship with my daughter. 
um, which I think is an obvious statement, you know, when you think it through. It's like, of course, I'm going to be different, not in terms of favoritism. Okay. Kids might argue differently if I'm honest, but I don't know. Uh, but not in terms of favoritism, but just in terms of, I think how you are with them so my boys was we were boisterous we would wrestle a lot you know we still banter each other and my my youngest son my middle child zach always makes fun that he can you know his muscles are bigger than mine now and all that it's just <laughs> it's just good fun um and uh, you know and i'm i'm super proud of both my boys and but i think how a dad is with his daughter is different and i think in many ways, how a dad is with his daughter defines how she sees men going forward, you know, and I, th I think that relationship is super powerful. Um, so here you are, your dad's had a restraining order against him, you know, um, he's in jail, things are not great. Were they great before the divorce? I mean, did you, would you? No. Right. Yeah, they were, my parents were always at each other's throats. We had, my sister and I had suitcases packed in our um, closets that we would take when things just got yucky again and we were going to leave for a couple of days. So it was always chaotic. My dad would often retreat away during Christmas or a birthday celebration because he just didn't want to be with anybody. So wow. dad would be in the room and we would pretend everything was fine without him. Um so no, it was not good before either. So you see your friend then when, you know, your Christian friend who I'm assuming had a pretty reasonable relationship with her dad and you're thinking, well, this is what family yeah. could look like. Was that, was that really the first time you saw that actually maybe you are missing something and maybe life isn't normal in your house? Yeah. Cause you know, when you're a kid, you just assume like, this is what a family yeah. is. This is how yeah. life goes. And yeah, that was the first time that I had spent enough time um, and had been relationally invested enough with another family to see that this feels so different. Mm. It's super powerful, this, because um, we, we, Sharon and I, we've been married 26 years this year. Um, and she's not killed me yet, which I feel like is is a win uh, on both levels. <laughs> That's with. a major win. Yeah, yeah. A super win, especially for me. Um, and we've... We've had a pretty open house throughout our marriage. In other words, we've we're, we we've always got people around, um, mm -hmm. and sometimes sometimes people have keys to the house that I don't even know, and they just turn up and it's oh hello, you know, and it's that <laughs> kind of thing. And I remember we've always tried to do family. We've always tried to do extended family, and I appreciate in the church there's often quite broken people, you know, the, the and so. It, I've always tried to sort of ad ad adopt is a wrong phrase, but you mean to sort of welcome in, do the extended family thing and just get people in the house. And so we've done that. And I remember one time uh, a, f a girl had been coming around our house for a little while, a young girl. She was lovely, um, student age. She bought a friend and uh, her friend came around and actually not too dissimilar story to yours in terms of family background. And she sat there and, uh, and it was Easter. And I remember saying, oh, did you get an Easter egg? She's like, no. And she was maybe in her early 20s at this point. I'm like, no, that's just totally wrong. So we went and I got some chocolate and, and did all kinds of stuff. And um, we invited her back around, but she never came back uh, to the house. And I was, I was really curious. This really struck me, actually. It was a really powerful moment for me. Because I asked her friend, I said, why is she not coming back? Um, did we upset her in some way? And she went, no, not at all. She just couldn't cope with the fact that you were such a loving family because it's totally not her experience. Mm -hmm. um, and all it's done is sort of shown her what she's not had growing up mm -hmm. and and your heart breaks in situations like that because there is just i think in in christian terms you know we especially in evangelical church you 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 we talk a lot about winning the lost and all this sort of stuff and how are we going to do that and, and do we are we inviting people to church and do we take people to an alpha course and that sort of stuff and actually one of the most powerful things i've seen happen is when Christian families invite people around to their house and just be family. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I, I think that's super. And this is what I'm hearing you say when you were around at your friend's house, right? Yeah. We have tried to take exactly that stance because of that reason that I don't know where I would have ended up. I mean, 
I would think that God would get a hold of me somehow in a different way if it hadn't been that way. But I wouldn't have taken myself to church back yeah. when I was in college if it hadn't been for that experience. And so especially when our kids bring around um, friends that are a little bit harder to love or a little bit harder <laughs> to have in the house, like yeah. I am just taken back there because I'm like, they need it more than anyone. And we are just mm. going to radically accept them and show mm. them what love looks like. Yeah. How old are your kids? Six, 10, 14, and 16. Oh, wow. Great ages. We did this yeah. thing when uh, our kids were growing up. Because like, like, you know, we. I was super keen that if, they, if my boys especially, and my daughter, you know, were going to hang out with their friends and their friends were like, where should we go hang out? I, w- I wanted their friends to be able to go, you know, let's go to your house. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go hang out there because they felt like it was a safe space. And so we started doing all kinds of crazy things like um, fridge rights was a really good thing for us in the sense that just saying to kids when they've been around a couple of times, you know, you have fridge rights in my house now, which means I you can go to that. the you can go to the fridge and you can take anything out of the fridge as long as it's not alcoholic, obviously. Um, <laughs> uh, and when you're eighteen, you can do that. I don't mind, but uh, you know, uh, but until then, <laughs> just anything else is fine, and you don't need my permission. And I remember, I remember one guy going to the fridge. He was like thirteen, and I said to him, "You've now got fridge rights to my house." And I remember him going to the fridge. He opened it, looked inside the fridge. Then he looked at me because I was watching him. And he said, I've got fridge rights, right? And I said, you've totally got fridge rights. And so they, they, they did. They would all come around the house. They would hang out. They would help themselves to stuff in the fridge. And we made a bit of a song and dance. But, and to be fair, when I look back over it, Kristen, I think they bought more food around to my house than they consumed. They would bring these cheap, nasty frozen pizzas and cook them in the freezer because I would refuse to stock them. <laughs> Um, but just having that environment where your kids feel like this is a cool place to, you know, my, my friends want to come and hang out here, I think is just, is radically awesome. Yeah, that's so good. We try to do the same. And so our kids are just emerging into those ages, but they, yeah, we, Sometimes I'm like, oh, I, I wish I knew how many table or places we're going to set at the table tonight. <laughs> it would be so much easier if I just yeah. knew yeah. that everyone was going to fit in the car when we were going to go somewhere. Like, you know, mm. the uncertainty of having a mixture of kids in your house all the time mm. is a little bit stressful sometimes. But yeah. to me, it's totally worth it. Yeah, it's a bit chaotic, but totally worth it. Because it's just a short time as well, you know, and it mm-hmm. it's... um. <laughs> So you're, you become a Christian, you, you, God sort of deals with you on the boy thing, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, fascinating because one of the first things happened to me when I became a Christian was the opposite, obviously, with, with girls. Um, I was, how old was I, 18, a similar age, 18, 19 when I became a Christian. And um, I, it was a big work in me, I think, that God did. He's just like, no, I'm totally dealing with this first, dude. You, you, <laughs> there's just the rest of it will come, but this, no. And so you're like, okay. And so, how you mentioned you brought in some of that baggage, right? That rejection, that hurt, that betrayal from from growing up into your marriage. What did that look like in the early years? It looked like a, you know, uh, the idea of attachment, like we are attached to our caregivers early on. And Mm. if we don't do that, then we're either constantly trying to avoid conflict and avoid people and avoid vulnerability, or we're like desperately seeking it. I think I was some combination of the two. I was desperately seeking validation and just wanting to know that I was worthy and Mm. that I was loved and I was seen um, because I never really felt those things before. Um, But then the minute somebody would get close, I was like, no, no, like don't get too close and know all my things because then you're definitely going to leave me. Mm. Um, So it was a lot of that in my marriage, a lot of like um, anxious seeking validation from my husband and then also some stonewalling and putting up barriers of not really letting him see me uh, because I was so afraid that he was going to leave. So it just created a lot of unnecessary conflict and confusion for him because he didn't come from a house like that. He had two married parents and he didn't have those same feelings. And so Mm. he was often like, what am I dealing with here? And so 
And then we started to have kids right away. And so you add kids to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that just magnifies whatever issues are already going on. And I quickly realized that I was repeating a lot of the ugly behaviors that I saw Mm -hmm. in my house, just like because I didn't know a different way to love and I didn't know a different way to handle conflict. Mm. I didn't know a different way to communicate. Mm. And so I was falling into those same traps and they were not working. So I had a a lot of work ahead of me. (laughs) There's no surprise they weren't working. Uh, You know, (laughs) so when you were, um, you and your husband, Sean, right? His name's Sean. When you and yeah. Sean were, uh, I don't know how, you, we would call it courting. You know, it's very uh-huh. much just a romantic term, isn't it? We're courting. And it's all very nice and, and cute and, and lovely. And then um, I take it one day, Sean just pops the question and you're like, oh my gosh, yes, uh, totally. Um, did you, you meant, we mentioned in the bio that you do this sort of pre-marriage counselling with mm-hmm. Sean, did you have that before you got married? Did somebody draw your attention to any of this? Or was it a case of we're just young, naive, and just believe everything's going to be fine? (laughs) Yeah, no one did this. And we often joke now, say, who let those babies get married? Because (laughs) we were so young. Yeah. And I mean, on top of us being young and to me not having a great model for marriage, his dad was passing away and we wanted him to be at the wedding. And so Mm. we sped up our engagement and got married pretty fast. And so we still had a year left of college for both of us to do. And, um, and we were married. So we had zero of this and we, that's why we're so passionate about it now. Cause we're like, do you know how different our first 10 years of marriage could have been if Mm -hmm. someone had knocked us upside the head with just (laughs) having to think through some of these things and answer some of these questions. So, so how old were you when you got married in your early twenties? 20. I was 20 and he was 21. Stone the crow. So actually you got married quite quickly after becoming a Christian. So you've gone from this yeah. chasing boys for validation thing to that whole script being switched up and you're going, no, yeah, marriage is cool. Um, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's quite a, a radical change quite quickly, I would have thought. Yeah, uh, too quickly, probably. I could have used some mentorship and guidance and learning in between. So what did your mom and dad make of this when you came back in your early 20s and you're like, yeah, I'm getting married? My dad still wasn't in the picture, so he didn't know about it. Um, my mom um, was not thrilled and tried to convince me over and over to not yeah. go through with it. Um, but we marched ahead. <laughs> we sure showed them. Um, <laughs> so the book that you've written then, Legacy Changer, is all about this experience, isn't it? It's all about the lessons that you have learned bringing this level of baggage into both your marriage and your parenting because you you said you you sort of started to have kids pretty much straight away. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm kind of curious, Kristen, as you're going, at what point is the realisation dawning on you that actually there are some things which aren't right and some things God needs to do a work on here? It was between our second and third kiddos. We lost a baby and mm. I was just not okay. Yeah. Um, I had been many months and I was still just, I mean, so not okay that I was not being able to care for the kiddos that we did have mm. and I was a wreck. So growing up, my family had kind of made fun of or shamed anything to do with mental health. So going to counseling or seeing a therapist or taking medicine or anything like that, like that was for fools. They were getting scammed into that. And so, uh, but I finally reached a point where I was like, I don't care if I'm a fool, at least maybe I'm going to be a fool that can function. So I'm going to counseling. And so I showed up in a counselor's office and then I was shocked how relatively quickly compared to what I had been going through that I began to grieve the baby and I was really healing from that and realized, okay, God has me here for healing for much more than the baby that, you know, she kept going back to like, but let's talk about your mom again. And let's talk Mm. about how you feel about your dad or that. And I was so confused at first, like, I don't, we're here for the baby. Why does she want to talk about that? Mm. And so when we got past the baby and we started to unpack that, it was my first realization that like, okay, 
I I have some really deep wounds that I have not been acknowledging. Wow. So when you started to acknowledge them um, and it started to come up in counselling, what was that like? Was that quite a, a traumatic thing to deal with? Did you have to let yourself be... Um, vulnerable to that for a little while or is it a case of okay well I, I appreciate that they're there but I've, I've got these kids to look after and I'll sort this out in in five years time kind of a thing um I would say it was a slow burn mm. I I really wanted to heal it once I was aware of it but I just I wasn't sure I was strong enough I didn't know how and it took me like a very slow drip to just release a little bit more and a little bit more mm-hmm. and um it really took a lot of years for me to even fully admit and recognize how unhealthy the relationships were and my family was and my upbringing was. Um, it was honestly many years. I'm trying to think exactly how many, I think maybe eight or nine years until I hit more of a rock bottom relationally with my family mm. and decided to do some trauma work um and you know because you can do talk therapy all day long but if you're not targeting like those memories that are held deep in your nervous system then you're not releasing that trauma Mm. and i was still i was just always operating up here was my baseline and so any amount of stress just like pushed me right over the edge Mm -hmm. because i was always up here and so what the trauma therapy did was really like bring my baseline back down Mm. and so i had a much bigger tolerance for you know, just the stress that kids and marriage and life brings on. Mm. How is your, um, how is Sean with all of this? Because here you are, you get married as, well, I don't mean to be disparaging, but you got married as kids, right? And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm imagining, especially if he grew up in a Christian house and he had parents that loved each other and sort of modeled that, which is obviously a different uh, one to what you had, he's going to have a, he's going to have expectations, isn't he really? That Mm -hmm. um, sound like maybe weren't quite met in that way. So I'm kind of curious, how, Mm -hmm. how was he dealing with all of this? I think expectations is the word that nails it. Like our expectations of each other could not have been more far off and not at all well communicated. And so he's constantly expecting one thing from me and like, what are these, all these enormous feelings she has all the time? Cause his family, while it was significantly healthier than mine, it was veering on the edge of like, everything's fine. We don't yeah. really have big feelings yeah. that we discuss. Yeah. Um, and so he was like, no, thank you to all your feelings. Mm. And I was like, I desperately need someone to hold these feelings for me and mm. expecting him to be more than he was supposed to be. I mean, that should have been a role for probably some friends, definitely the counselor and yeah. God that I was like mm. totally not letting him in on it because I saw God kind of like I saw my dad, like I better put on a buttoned up polished version of myself mm-hmm. for him mm-hmm. to love me and want to accept me. And so I better not tell God like all these ugly things that I'm thinking and feeling like as if he doesn't already know, but I <laughs> yeah, held just... that view or like that fear with God for way too yeah. long. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's so prevalent in the church in terms of how we view God, that we have to sort of put our best face forward. Um, yet when you read the Psalms and you read David and you even just read the book of Ruth and the way Naomi talks about how rubbish everything is. You're just kind of like, well, actually, these, these are people quite real. And, and God's recorded this in scripture for us to read. No, it's okay. It's okay if you if you just want to just, bleh, don't stay there, mm-hmm. but it's okay, you know. And and yeah. um, I think it's one of the hardest lessons for Christians to learn uh, in a lot of ways is that authentic realness with a God who is not mad at you if you just, have some emotional feelings that you want to talk to him about, you know? Yeah. And that he's big enough to handle it. Like there's nothing that I'm going to say that's going to make yeah. him be like, uh, I actually made a mistake adopting you as a child. Like I'm done with that. <laughs> yeah. That's it. You're out. Sorry. Just I'm, I'm out. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so you didn't talk to your dad for 12 years. What happened to what happened there? Because 
that's obviously past tense the way you talk about it. So I'm assuming you're talking to dad now. Yeah. Um, we, Sean and I were doing, um, a class at church and we had some mentors and I just began to kind of unpack the whole situation with them mm-hmm. and felt convicted that I wanted to reach out to him. Like I didn't know where he was. I didn't know what his situation was. Yeah. And I just wanted to let him know that I wasn't harboring like any act of resentment. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to clear the air a little bit. So, um, I reached out to him and, um, it was super slow building back of communication. Mm. And um, I think there was an element of me that assumed that because I had changed so significantly mm-hmm. from the last time he and I were in a relationship that my hope was that he had too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's some element of healing, but not what I was wishing and hoping for. Mm. It wasn't a new, going to be a newfound loyalty to me Mm. and love that I just really had wanted. So Mm. I think there was an element of grieving probably what I had never really grieved um, Mm. in the first place that this is a relationship that's not going to ever be what I wish it was. Um, So um, we have some communication now, But um, I also hold a lot of really strong boundaries because Mm. I care most about my kids' experience Mm -hmm. and Mm want to protect them from a relationship that they can't depend on. Yeah. Wow, man. Sorry to hear it. It's it's just my heart breaks when the bond between a dad and his daughter is is shattered in a lot of ways, you know, and I and I I so don't want that with my own kids um, in any way. But I I get how that alters how you view God, right? So mm-hmm. um, I'm kind of, my. I guess my question here for you, Kristen, is fast forward to the modern day, right? So we're recording this early 2024. Your book's about to come out. And I'm guessing, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong. I'm guessing your marriage is in a stronger place now than when you're in your early 20s significantly yeah yeah and so uh, your marriage is better i'm assuming as well as in yeah. much more fulfilling so yeah. um you've obviously had to work through a whole bunch of stuff i guess my my point here is for anybody that's listening actually going through the hard stuff is often quite worth it do you know mm. what i mean it's it's a painful process but for you it seems that actually no this has been a worthwhile journey both in terms of marriage and parenting a hundred percent yeah we and um we have some kiddos um with adhd we have a kiddo on the autism spectrum so we have some just different dynamics too that Mm. that if we hadn't figured out how to get on the same page and i hadn't been willing to do the work of healing there is Mm. just no way i could be showing up as the parent that these kiddos need Mm. And God has just been wildly faithful because he knew the parent that these kiddos needed. And he also knew that I wasn't that parent yet Mm. and that I needed to grow into it. Mm. And he's just been so kind and faithful every single step of the way. My therapist said, Kristen, stories that start like yours don't usually end like yours. Mm. And I just think that, you know, put my story on a timeline. You can just point to so many spots where like, God was there. God was mm, there mm. even before I was having awareness, even before I was, you know, having a relationship with him before I was putting him in the proper spot in my life. Like he was just protecting me and protecting me. And, um, I think that is the really cool part of doing the hard, messy work mm. is until you're willing to do that, you also can't see the full depth of how faithful God has mm, been. Mm. That's so powerful. So what are some of the key things? I mean, some of the things that you have learned along the way, obviously you, you're going to go into much more detail in the book about these things, and I, I appreciate that. But sort of what for you, what are some of the top things that God has really taught you? I mean, forgiveness sounds like it would be one of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but what 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 are some of the big changes that you have seen God doing you? What were the lessons he taught? One of them is... 
just about voice and relationally, because I just always felt like my voice didn't matter in my house growing up. And so it took me a long time to realize that God wants me to use my voice and that my voice matters. And I think he has taught me that in a way that's allowed me to parent my kids differently Mm -hmm. and to hear their voice because I was not doing that in the beginning of my Mm -hmm. mothering years. But um, I think also a lot of the things that he's taught me about the brain and trauma and knowing that hard things happen to every single person, but why are some people left with trauma when others aren't? Mm. And it's a matter of how they're cared for. And if they were felt any sense of agency, like did my voice matter in the situation? Did I have an opportunity to get out of the situation? Did I have choices or was I just stuck to mm. tolerate this harm? And so helping my kids like identify their feelings and know what's happening around them and know that they have some agency over their body and their words that come out of their mouth and that they can affect the situation um, and that we're listening and that we care what they have to say. Um, So all those relational things that I think God's been teaching us all along throughout the Bible, like this is how God interacts with his people. Mm -hmm. And he gives people a voice who had none. And those lessons are all throughout scripture. Um, But it's just taken me a long time (laughs) to learn them for my own self. And I think that was really my heart with the book was all these things that I learned about myself because I finally learned about Mm. God Mm. is I just want people to have these tools um, much quicker than I had them. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm I'm listening to you talk and I'm trying to picture in my head the sort of 19-year-old Kristen sat in the back of the church and then I'm trying to picture that today's Christian stood at the front of the church and I'm kind of curious what the sermon would mm. be. Do you know what I mean? What would you, what, what would that, what would that be about? Would it be about voice? Would it be about forgiveness? Would it be about all of those things? What would you say to yourself in that church? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think um, it would have a lot to do with story. I think God teaches us through so much through story and it's also a really uh, profound impact of us understanding our own story because uh, it's hard to know where we want to go or uh, reorient our life to head somewhere else if we don't really mm-hmm. understand where we've come from and what has brought us to the point we're at and like over and over the stones in the Jordan and holding the jar of manna and over and over, God tells us to remember and to teach the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I, the things that I inherited into my story um, were really hard things and they weren't taught to me well. And I just really want to be teaching the stories to the next generation, my kids, mm-hmm. of a God that's so faithful. And mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's true that I went through all these hard things, but it's also true that God carried me through them. Mm. Wow. Powerful, powerful stuff. And it's one of those where um, the thing I like about your story is it's one of redemption, you know, and the things which I suppose the enemy meant for good, uh, for evil, God has turned Mm. for good. And you look at that and you go, that's, that's just, I mean, I'm sorry that you went through what you went through, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, I'm grateful that God had brought you through it. And here you are to tell the story to, to, to help others, I think is quite, quite extraordinary, really. So what's next uh, for you? Because I'm aware in my own life, if I'm, if, you know, if I'm on a scale of one to 10, 10 being totally sorted out, you know, God, you don't need to do any more work in me. I don't, I, I'm definitely not there. Right. But neither yeah. am I where I was. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm on a journey. I'm curious for you, Kristen, where, what's next? Yeah. I always say that like, I'm never going to arrive under the sign that says like, you've arrived to healing. Like you are healed. Like that doesn't exist until the other side of heaven. And mm-hmm. so I think there will always be more healing yet to have. And that's what sanctification is like walking more like Jesus the whole time. Mm. And so, um, I love writing and I love speaking to women, but I really love getting into their stories with them too. So I'm going to be doing some coaching and some one-on-one work and some mentorship, um, because they're, 
every, you know, no matter what your story looks like, there are things that you can say, I love my family and I am want to be honoring to them, but also there are things that they did that didn't serve me well and mm. that I can do different and better for the next generation. And so I think finding where you are on that scale and unpacking that um, has profound generational impact. Mm. And so when we're working with one woman doing that, we're working with generations to come um, of what their stories are going to look like different. So um, I'm s- starting my own podcast and getting into Fantastic. more of these stories. Yep. Um, and so we'll just keep seeing where God takes me, but mm. getting into it with women, get, doing the dirty work with them is important to me. Fantastic. And the name of the podcast? Up until now. Up until so we're now. talking about all these things might have been true up until now, but they don't have to be going forward because God is in the business of redemption. Love, love that. That's fantastic. Uh, where can people find your book? Tell us a bit more about that and how do people get hold of you if they want to do that? Yeah, um, Amazon, um, christianbook.com, Barnes & Nobles. It's available just about anywhere for pre-order right now. It launches February 20th. And I'm on Instagram at kristen.hallinan. Uh, my website's the same, kristenhallinan.com. Kristen Hallinan, spelled Hawley Nan, uh, if you're in the UK. Yes, it's, <laughs> yes. Hall I Nan. Uh, Nan being a colloquial term here in the UK for your grandmother. Just you know, Oh, yeah, yeah. you just taught me something. Well, I, I try. <laughs> <laughs> what do British people call their grandmas? Nan. Uh, that's what they call them. Nan, Nana. Nanny. No, not Nanny. Nan. Although my kids called my grand, uh, their, my mum, they called her Nanan. They couldn't quite say Nan, so they went Nanan. That was kind of cute, and that stuck. So yeah, it's super cute. Kristen, listen, so I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story. And I, I, if you're listening to the show and you want to reach out to Kristen, do that. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. Do check out the book. Um, but a super powerful testimony, man. So grateful for you know what God's done in you and in the family and. Um, just hearing the story uh, of redemption is uh, super encouraging. So bless you and thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. And just like that, we've reached the end of another fascinating conversation. Crowd Church is a digital church, a community, a space to explore the Christian faith and a place where you can contribute and grow. To find out more, check out www.crowd.church. And don't forget to subscribe to What's the Story on your favorite podcast app. We've got a whole lot of inspiring stories coming your way, and we really don't want you to miss any of them. What's the Story is the production of Crowd Church. Our fantastic team is made up of Anna Kettle, Matt Edmondson, Tanya Hutzelak, and myself, Southern Fainan. We work behind the scenes to bring these stories to life. Our theme song is the creative work of Josh Edmondson. If you're interested in the transcript or show notes, head over to our website, whatsthestorypodcast.com and sign up for our weekly newsletters to get all this goodness delivered straight to your inbox. So that's all from us this week. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll catch you in the next episode. Bye for now.